Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, this is episode 152 of Historically Thinking. Martha Graham has been described as the Picasso of modern dance. She was an icon of modernist high culture, received at the White House by every president from Franklin Roosevelt to George H.W. Bush, and was a cultural ambassador sent abroad by the United States to demonstrate, as today's guest writes, that a freedom of expression was available only in a democracy in which artists were not tools of the state and thus not subject to totalitarian intervention or suppression, be it Nazi or Soviet. My guest is Victoria Phillips, lecturer in history at Columbia University and author of Martha Graham's Cold War, The Dance of American Diplomacy, published in January by Oxford University Press. Dr. Phillips has been a dancer, a portfolio manager on Wall Street, and is now an editor of the journal American Communist History, and as well an editor of Dance Chronicle. She is also a member of the board of the Society of Dance Historians in the United Kingdom, and many other interesting things besides, I should add. Victoria Phillips, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you so much for having me. Well, um, this is... uh, a fascinating book and a fascinating topic, um, not only because I never expected that I would be interested in um, a discussion of Cold War politics and modernist dance, uh, but for a couple reasons. One is, as I finished the book, I had this feeling of um, of tremendous distance, not just from the Cold War world, which I'm old enough to remember, um, which does feel like a much longer ago than it actually was, but also from the world of high modernism. Um, it feels so removed from me now. I don't know how I'd like to talk with you about that. Um, it's perhaps less so for you. Um, but it's also, as I was encountering this, I never thought of dance as almost a language. Um, I think you could write about the history of early American football, say, and masculinity without knowing how to run a play. Um, but I don't think that would be possible with dance. And we'll, we'll probably get to more of that at the end when we talk about dance archives. But um there's so much here that we have to, I think, uh, fill in the background uh, for. Um, so I think we should ex- begin by explaining what modern dance actually is with, on a podcast, which is difficult. I've been watching YouTube videos of Martha Graham to educate myself. Uh, I think this is the, one of the big questions that I had to answer and um, one that I uh, it took a long time, huh. um, 13 years to answer if, if I have answered it at all. Um, I think you made a really good distinction when you called it modernist dance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that there is a distinction that has to be made between modern dance as a genre and modernist dance as something that one might think of as more contemporary. Mm-hmm. Um, and Martha Graham famously said, um, my dance is not political. My dance is not, I, I am not a modernist. I do not do modern dance, um, which of course was very striking to me when I found her um, in every White House, Roosevelt through George uh, Bush. Um, 
and um, on tour with every under every president Eisenhower with a planned tour under Bush in no, November 1989. But a funny thing happened: the wall <laughs> fell. Um, and um, uh, so you know, political. You know, I started scratching my head when I saw the archives, and this seemed extremely political. Um, and then she said to her dancers. Often it was a trope. Um, I, you know, that her work was not a, that of modern dance. She said she was always contemporary, um, and this is a big question in the book. What is modern dance? How is it framed? How has it been defined? And how do we define it now? Um, and where it got very interesting for me was as Martha Graham um, went on tour, she was defined by critics as historically modern by the seventies, even old fashioned modern, um, or, um, some other rather less comfortable terms to describe her work when it wasn't going so well. Um, so, um, you know, what is, um, historical modernism? Um, in one instance, um, Clive Barnes, a famous critic, um, put up the headline, Forever Modern. Hmm. Um, so I argue in the book that uh, modern dance is a construction um, and that the U.S., it was something that the U.S. critics defined um, and made, um, particularly in the 1930s, defining it as a German art um, or led by the Germans, um, I'm sorry, in the 1920s, um, it then becomes distinctly American with the Dance Repertory Theater in 1930 and Graham's landmark breakthrough work, Lamentation. Um, and then after World War II, there's a critical moment, I believe, with the publication of a book called The Borzoi Book of Modern Dance. And that is a critical explanation of what modern dance is. And it's a nice, big, thick, out-of-print book, which I find extremely useful. And um, what it says there is, although the modern dance was... I believe that it was seeded in Germany, um, Hellerau, Mary Bigman, um, just after World War One, and the Japanese with Michio Ito and others. What this book says is um, it instructs us that um, because um, the Germans were allied with the Nazis and the Japanese um, were fascist or, you know, not free, um, that Modern dance um, is that modern dance is ascribable to the land of its birth or America because America is free. Modern dance is free and could only come from the United States, which is free. I find this extremely interesting. Um, it was certainly useful mm -hmm. <laughs> construct for the State Department as it started sending out modern dance as distinctly American, yet universal, in that it tapped into the heart and soul of mankind through abstraction of grief or love or lament, whatever it was. Um, so I, I, I argue that it, that it was an impulse to get to something deeply human, as in Jung or Freud, um, through movement, yet it was also politicized in um, after certainly in the 1930s, as Vigman started aligning herself with the Nazis, and certainly 
by the Cold War. Mm-hmm. There is, um, you emphasize that over and over again, Martha Graham emphasized that she was reaching universals. Um, and it, which is, oh my goodness, what a perfect encapsulation of the modernist project from the 17th century on to get beyond things, to find those things that are universally true. Right. And that's where the modern dance technique, and I wish we, we had some visuals here, <laughs> uh, is so interesting. Um, Isadora Duncan is often known as the mother of modern dance, and her work began with the solar plexus. It, it was from breath. So the universal is that we all breathe. Um, and then it took off the toe shoes, the point shoes from the ballerinas, took off the slippers from the men. And the idea was that we would be, um, we would feel the ground beneath us as, you know, as when, as when we first walked, mm-hmm. for example. Um, interestingly, Isadora Duncan, known as the mother of modern dance and an American, um, was uh, known um, for her um, promotion of the communist um, uh, uh, beliefs um, performed for Lenin um, and um, was very much celebrated by the early Soviet state and um, wrote a work called I See America Dancing, which is used in dance history classes as proving that um, the mother of modern dance was American, but indeed, you know, historians have really shown that she wrote that from France in order to ingratiate herself um, to the Americans after proclaiming, I am red, <laughs> um, and trying to get back into the United States with this long article um, published after her death about her grandmother on the frontier and, you know, mm-hmm. on and on and on with Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier. Um, so that is a, an interesting twist. In the, in the history of modern dance and the reframing of modern dance um, away from politics, because if you framed it within the political context, the mother of modern dance mm-hmm. was Bolshevik. <laughs> so that's not very um, And actually, George Kennan, the father of containment, recalls as he was writing his long telegram, which sent, set containment policy for Truman, um, he he writes about seeing the ballet in um, in the Soviet Union and seeing these kind of awful Isadora Duncan dancers at a at a cir- as a part of a circus act. Hmm. Um, so one of the convenient things for the United States is that um, the quote is Stalin loved toe dancing. There's certainly dispute among scholars as to whether he really said that. But the idea was that Stalin really liked ballet, and it was a way for him to both ingrain a sense of Russianness, um, in, as well, while he changed the audience, changed the endings in some cases of Swan Lake, um, but really kept in touch with um, an aesthetic um, that appealed to him. Um, so um, modern dance was um, kind of languished. Um, or became very second rate um, within the Soviet Union, which made it a perfect mm-hmm. export um, in the Cold War because it was an apples to oranges fight. Yeah, and it's also very interesting that and I hadn't thought about this. Is that the, of course, the Bolshoi was used as a cultural weapon of cultural diplomacy. That's weapon of cultural diplomacy uh, for the entire history of the Soviet Union. Um, uh, but, uh, of course, uh, what you just said, uh, Stalin was using it to express something Russian, um, 
uh, and yet, uh, on the other hand, here is uh, modern dance being used by the American State Department to express what Martha Graham says is something universal, that something, you know, common to all mankind. It's a very interesting uh, apples and oranges contrast. Absolutely. So the, the Russians um, or the Soviets, you know, they had the Bolshoi, they had this incredible technique. Um, but the problem was it was of the czar, right? Mm -hmm. It was Louis the 14th. You know, this is not of the common man. Um, and one of Martha Graham's consistent tropes was, it takes me 10 years to make a dancer. And basically, she claimed, although we can see in the bodies that it's not quite so, but she claimed that she could make anyone into a dancer who had the kind of the, the guts for it, who was who had the calling for it. And it took her 10 years to make a dancer, um, which is where it becomes well, the, the company becomes even more important as an export because she, again, the State, the State Department said she was made for export, which mm -hmm. I love. Um, in other words, she didn't do this because she was trying to get work. It, this was uh, from her heart, um, from her core beliefs that happened to be extremely useful as propaganda in the Cold War. So in the, when there were quotas about um, Jewish people dancing in companies in the United States um, in, the, um, in the 20s and early 30s, Martha Graham um, had many Jewish dancers and indeed did not um, take an, uh, an invitation from Goebbels to perform in the, the, the summer festival before the 1936 Olympics, which would have been a huge feather in her cap. Mm -hmm. She did not do that, in an stating in an eloquent letter that um, members of her company would not be welcomed. Um, in, 19, in the 1940s, Eleanor Roosevelt, who was a huge fan of Graham's, um, freed um, some people from uh, internment camps, and um, Yuriko then showed up at the Graham studio and became one of Graham's great stars. Um, in the early 1950s, Graham took Mary Hinkson and Matt Turney, both African-Americans, into her company, um, both women. Um, and interestingly, although Balanchine is really given the lion's share of the credit for a mixed-race couple on stage, um, as the first person. Indeed, if you look at Graham's company, um, Mary Hinkson, who was African-American, and Bertram Ross, who was Caucasian and Jewish, played um, the couple in white, or the purity of love, in Diversion of Angels, um, much before Balanchine uh, put a mixed-race couple on stage in a ballet work. Um, so she brought what the State Department called um, the mini UN, a mini UN with her company, which worked directly against this kind of lily white, pure, measured, perfect lineup in the Bolshoi, which seemed very totalitarian <laughs> and not of the people if you look at it. <laughs> yeah, I, I never had thought about that before this. Um, <laughs> What uh, what had Martha Graham done to give her such a stature? I mean, you said that her breakthrough work was lamentation. Uh, what made it a breakthrough work? She she's uh, such a titan uh, by the time by the late 1930s. It seems already, um, let alone the what she'll be by the 50s. Absolutely. So lamentation um, for me uh, and for most, I think, um, is the breakthrough work. Before that, she's ex she had some experimental pieces that were very powerful and stripped and clean and clear. 
But with lamentation, she truly takes abstraction to its core to show grief, a lament. Um, and what she does in that is she, she puts herself in a tube. So even the, the limbs can't be seen. Um, and she uses the contraction, which is the signature core element in her um, technique, which is the action in the pelvis um, that can be equated with weeping um, or um, with laughter. Um, and I don't know what your audience is like, but some sexual movements mm -hmm. <laughs> that she equated them with that, are, again, are universal. It's a deep, the deep puff of an exhale. So let me, let me, can I, I just remember, this is so, it's so fascinating. So she's breaking down. She's like, um, she's like a yoga teacher. Um, she's breaking down those uh, sort of finding the essential elements of bodily action to convey through dance. Um, That's right. She's eliminating so, everything extraneous. Uh, like what, this is, and this is, I, I guess, why she's so fascinated by Noguchi's uh, sculpture or Kandinsky. She's trying to find out what is that thing within painting that makes us appeal to color or movement. What is that thing within sculpture? The the minim, the minimal. Exactly. Exactly. And so she strips away the why, the where, mm -hmm. the when the how, and all you have is the what, which is grief. And it's brilliant. It is at its best. It is absolutely brilliant. I cannot imagine anyone watching Lamentation and thinking, what a funny dance. Uh -huh. uh, there's just something core in the way human beings move when they cry. And that's what she was getting to. Hmm. Um, and abstracting it and making it into art. Um, so that's Graham at her best, I think. And then she took that forward, working um, through Jungian principles, going into the Greek myths, placing the woman's center stage. And there you have, so, you know, if you have Medea, um, you don't, it's, you know, it's not some person playing Medea who's supposed to look like what we think Medea is supposed to look like. The woman play, plays jealousy, rage, um, you know, the, the anger of getting older, uh, you know, all of these wonderful human things, um, you know, um, her, her three-act work um, that brings in Agamemnon and Helen of Troy and all of these characters in, um, in Clytemnestra. She had, in Clytemnestra, she had Mary Hinkson, African-American, um, and um, she um, and many other dancers of different colors, races, you name it, um, play Clytemnestra because she believed that if that woman understood the core of Clytemnestra, that anger with her husband, that lust for her lover, that any, any woman could play it. That was, that was the trope. Mm -hmm. um, it gets very complicated in today's world of identity politics, and I've been booed off the stage for saying these things. Really? I must oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, uh, um, but of course that then Graham would be booed off the stage too because once again her point is to create some that to arrive to pare away everything to carve away everything until she's achieved something that's absolutely essential and therefore universal. Yes, and it's not you know not to get political, but you know this uh, the idea of truth, right? Mm -hmm. That that is right. There is a truth 
um, that um, is is fascinating because that is something that one would think that one that people believe. Mm -hmm. Yet um, in this world, um, sometimes it well, truth is relative, and you know who knows, and it's your truth versus my truth, and um, no one ever tells the truth anyway. So at least if somebody's not telling the truth, we know that they're not. It's it's absolutely fascinating, completely contrary to to modernism, high modernism. Yes, and that's I think that my feeling of immense distance between ourselves and that moment. Um, I uh, I've, I've rarely felt the being a postmodern uh, so much as when reading about Martha Graham and sort of her ideals. Um, it feels it does feel very far away. Um, what? Um, could you, you you met her, um, you saw her uh, when you were young. Um, I think it's useful for, we want to get autobiographical later, but I think it'd be useful for you to describe her as a personality because she comes across as a very vivid and strong personality, not just in her movement, but her voice. Uh, first of all, thank you. Um, a lot of work went into that. Um, I must say, I experienced her as a 16-year-old um, in a theater in New York City, I saw her come on, I saw her works done by her company, I saw her come on stage, and I said to myself, I want to do that, That's I want that, um, and went to work. I never knew her as anything much more than that. Um, I was in the classroom with her, I got some attention from her, but I was never in the inner circle. I was never in the company. She never created a work on me. You know, the best I got was some comments about doing a, a, some core work. So um, what I've really done in the book is relied on the dancers who knew her. Um, obviously watching her videos, remembering her voice, remembering her unbelievable charisma. And then talking to the dancers and Linda Hodes, most importantly, Peggy Lyman, um, Therese Capicilli. I mean, the dancers really opened themselves up to me. They opened up their the, their files under their beds. Um, Ethel Winter and Mary Hinkson, I um, became almost like aunts or grandmothers to me, um, F, uh, Pearl Lang, they, they opened themselves up to me in a wonderful way. And I'm deeply privileged and owe that to them. So what did they see in Martha Graham? Um, a guru? Um, uh, a coach? I mean, what was she to them? Uh, a mother? You know, I think that's a really interesting question. And I would want to really leave that to them. Um, Pearl Lang, um, she was on her deathbed, only we didn't know it. Um, we were talking about Graham, and she shook her fierce finger at me, and she said, never forget, Martha was a genius. Hmm. And that, I think, is the essence of all of the relationships that the women had with them. There was angst, and there was anger, and there was battling, and, Mar you know, Graham would, if she wanted... Um, Medea to hate somebody on stage. She set those two dancers against each other sometimes in the dressing room, so they would put it on stage. So um, there, I mean, 
the Graham company just is drama personified. Um, so there, there are lots of different feelings that people may have, but in, but Pearl summed it up. Um, never forget. Martha was a genius. So I, as I was thinking about this, uh, she has a longer tenure in, in, as an ambassador than any other American ambassador, probably in history. Um, how could you explain the presuppositions behind cultural diplomacy? Um, and how, there's sort of a moment for cultural diplomacy beginning in the late 40s, and then uh, then it takes off in the Eisenhower administration. Um, what were the presuppositions, and what was it? So I um, I think it changed over time. If, if I had it all to do to do all over again, I think I'd call it Martha Graham's Cold Wars, plural, mm-hmm. after Marilyn Young's Vietnam Wars. Um, so. Um, I would argue that the the effort um, to to really enact cultural diplomacy began under Roosevelt, mm-hmm. um, and um, he really started thinking about it, particularly in Latin America, with um, Nelson Rockefeller, uh, 1941. That was you know, they used dance. They also brought in libraries, uh, language, music, orchestral, all sorts of different um, projects, books. Um, one of the great things I think that's missed is the importance of libraries and books, but it's not very exciting to write about, probably. No, but it, it's so many, uh, so many uh, crises of the Cold War, and uh, began with someone, uh, people, a mob assaulting a, an American library. Or, yeah. you, know, you know, I mean, it's uh, very funny to, I mean, funny, it's not ha-ha funny, but it's curious to go back and look at that and say, what, what were those places? Why, why was there one in Lahore or Islamabad? Right. So the, the libraries are extremely important. I cannot get a student to write about them, but, really? um, you okay. know, it's, it's just great. And But Nelson Rockefeller and the Rockefeller Foundation, um, they were very involved in setting up these libraries. I think one of the great tragedies of American diplomacy right now is that we've shut them all. I mean, yeah. I think that would be the easiest thing in the world to do, but that's just my belief. Um, so um, I would say that it all started under Roosevelt um, in order um, really to, to, to fight the Nazis. And I also argue in the book that Roosevelt was very clever and understood that the United States did not know how to use the arts as propaganda and um, watched what uh, the Italians, what the Germans and what the Soviets were doing and how they did it and copied some of those programs. Um, we then go into World War II and come out. Um, Truman didn't. Truman liked ballet. Um, he understood its importance. He got very involved in a, in a tour of American ballet theater. But it was really Eisenhower who understood the vital import. And I believe soldiers often are the ones who understand that warfare is not a good thing to get involved with more than more than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, you know, whether you want to call it militarized or corporatized, the systems that Roosevelt had put into place with um, these with various agencies. Um, so it was, yes, as you as you were saying, it's really, you know, Eisenhower is where it all took off. And I think I think it's because he was a soldier. Mm-hmm. Um, because he had seen what he had seen. And, and um, it also, he has a sort of sensitivity to the full spectrum of uh, diplomatic and military engagement. I mean, it's it's perhaps significant that he's also the, maybe the president who's, I don't know if best used or most used the CIA, um, that's, that he was mastery of all these various techniques. He, he had a very full quiver of things that he developed. He used the CIA for better. Yeah, right. I mean, he, 
but he he, he used it and he was he was its master um and yeah. it seems like that way with also this uh, reading this book it seems very much that way with all cultural diplomacy she's not the only person uh, people know no. more of louis armstrong and duke ellington's uh, jazz tours but these are all things are happening at once voices of america but we could go on and on with that and, and the american libraries the other thing that I think is vital about the, about Eisenhower's engagement and understanding it um, as a military man um, or somebody with a military background working on this is that these cultural engagements were rarely just, I, I don't even know if ever, just the State Department. Mm -hmm. In other words, Army was sometimes involved, um, particularly, uh, what you can see in the 1950 tour of American Ballet Theater, but most uh, in uh, when... Graham went on the Jimmy Carter Goodwill Tour in 1979. Um, there was often army engagement. Um, the other, obviously, foundations, um, host country um, companies and banks, um, American companies and banks wanting to do business in the host countries. So these were were generally, they were operations that had a lot of moving pieces. Mm -hmm. um, and not and not just the State Department. At first, I call them State Department tours, and I try not to do that. Although it's a great shortcut. Yeah, and this is also, of course, then I'm sure she was being debriefed by the CIA. Those would be interesting files to get a hold of. I don't know if they're some of them might be declassified. Um, not. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> Not bad. Okay. Um, uh, and this is also the moment the culture of, con that we haven't even mentioned the Congress of Cultural Freedom um, and Encounter Magazine and all the rest of it. But um, let's talk a, a little bit more about how this worked. How, how then she was not planning her tours. <laughs> the State Department was doing that. A, a collection of, of interests were planning that where she would go and the, where that she would take her company. It was complicated. Yeah, I'll bet. It's, it's complicated. So, um, they, they, there was a there was something called the ANTA board, um, and that um, was private individuals um, who would decide which companies were appropriate for export, music, theater, dance, and, and then there was a jazz um, uh, panel as well. Um, on that panel, there were also State Department representatives. And over the years, um, these became highly contested <laughs> discussions um, about who was good, who was good for where, what the what the country plans were from the United States Information Agency, what, what were the goals, who would fit those goals, on and on. I mean, it's no accident that Alvin Ailey went to Africa, um, Martha Graham went to Asia, you know, they're, they're obviously, they're, they were looking for some kind of what I call cultural convergences. In other words, somebody can look at it and say, ah, yes, I understand that, even though it's universal. Mm -hmm. um, so um, the country plans written by the State Department and the United States Information Agency give a lot of details about you know, what we need where, and that's the glory of American diplomacy at its best, is that people on the ground knew the countries, and you didn't have somebody in Washington saying, well, I think we need blah, blah. Um, indeed, there is one Washington fellow who says at one point, I think we should send a cowboy and Indian show to India. <laughs> <laughs> Not a very good idea, right? The Indi you know, the, in the the people working for the United States Information Agency in India certainly were not, you know, putting forth that we should export a cowboy and Indian show. Um, they thought Martha Graham was a good idea. Um, so um, I think there's this there's a push me pull you um, 
there, Martha Graham at one point in the 60s was, um, they really wanted her to go to um, the Soviet Union, into into, into Moscow and, and St. Petersburg. She went to a lot of bloc countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, she really did not want to go. And there was, she was getting older, she had her own health problems. Um, so there, wa- there were arguments um, that when she first went to the Orient, there were arguments about whether she should go to Europe and you know, on and on and on and on. So there were, it was all discussion based. Um, and the same thing I think went on with this decision of which repertory was performed when and what the programming looked like. A part of it was which dancers do we have on tour and what's gonna look good. Um, but also I find it no accident that as we're using freedom of religion in Poland to fight the Cold War and persuade them that the West is the way to go, that Martha Graham's programming um, suddenly takes on Joan of Arc. No, not suddenly, but that what's played in Poland is, um, is, is religious stories. Um, rather than um, Appalachian Spring and the story of the American frontier, shall we say. Did you find any explicit um, rationale why she was doing Joan of Arc in Poland? There's nothing in the notes to indicate that? No? No, not that I've I've never seen it regarding her. Uh Um, People have found these kinds of notes in discussions between State Department officials and Balanchine. Oddly, where I did find very explicit notes about what should go where was in the Holiday on Ice files, <laughs> <laughs> where I guess they thought no one was going to read them or something, but they are very explicit about what should go where, and it's not particularly um, complimentary. No, <laughs> no. What um, could you describe? Um... One of those tours, I mean, the, uh, pre- pre- if you had to describe one tour, which would it be? I don't, I don't, I don't want to say, what was your favorite tour to read yeah. about? But what one is sort of emblematic? I was thinking of, like, for example, was it 1957 in Berlin? Yes, the Berlin yeah. 1957 tour was very interesting to me, um, especially because she's with Eleanor Dulles, perhaps yeah. the, the smartest of the Dulleses. Um, That's what I argue. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, or, or, or any other ones, dealer's choice. So um, I, uh, the 1957 tour was really a breakthrough for me because um, what the only way that I found out about many of these tours was first through her FBI file hmm. uh, and second um, by uh, through oral histories with dancers. And the Berlin tour appeared once in a reference to what had happened in the past in an anti-dance panel meeting. I thought, wait, what? <laughs> um, so it, 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 was, it, was, it was not in oral histories because she went alone. Um, Bertram Ross, who was her star male dancer, refers to what happened after she came back. Um, so there, it was like, and, but, and then I found in her papers, in her scrapbooks, a letter from Eleanor Dulles thanking her for having performed. Hmm. So it was, you know, it was, that was, that was the first time I realized that she, Martha Graham was in some cases not, not hiding, but placing a veil over some of these political activities um, in the effort to, I think, very appropriately say, I'm, my, my work is not political because if it were political, it wouldn't be useful um, as Cold War pro-American information. Um, so 
um, that, uh, you know, that was, that was a real moment where I said, all right, now we have to go backwards. There was very little in, there was nothing in the Arkansas State Department files about it. There were hints about it in the National Archives at College Park. And I went, you know, hunt and peck through dispatches and various other documents. Um, and so when I did this, I went to Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> and I found the documents there. And um, so the, our State Department at one point decided that culture wasn't very important and pruned our national archives and put what they thought was important in Arkansas with the Fulbright papers in a very nicely um, archi- uh, cataloged collection that doesn't happen to include all the tours. <laughs> huh. uh, so you would think that Martha Graham went on two tours, one in 1955-56 and one in 1974, if you looked at our State Department archives. However, a lot of times if you go backwards and go into the countries where she performed, you find our State Department documents. And that's how I uncovered this tour. Um, And it ended up taking me from Berlin um, and the opening of Congress Hall to Harvard, to the architectural files of the architect. Um, to the files of Claire Booth Luce because she was at the opening, Lillian Gish's autobiography because she was at the opening, Um, then Bertram Ross's reflections on what happened to Graham after the opening, Um, a few oral histories. Um, So it was really, um, Eleanor Dulles has put, I went to uh, to the Eisenhower archives to look at Eleanor Dulles' files because she kind of masterminded all of this as far as I can tell. Um, So that was the first chapter that let me know that this is, uh, this requires thinking around and about and backwards and forwards. Um, and um, that served me very well with the 1979 tour, which is my second favorite, perhaps because I like this kind of work. Mm. Um, and because there were no records, even the Jimmy Carter archives didn't have any records of what the dancers called the Jimmy Carter Goodwill Tour. Um, <laughs> right, to Egypt, Israel, and um, Jordan just after the Camp David Accords. Oh. Um, and so that, again, led me to Israel, it led me to Jordan, it, you know, it, it, it led me to Lebanon to do oral history there, it led me under dancers' um, beds to pull out State Department memos. And um, so, you know, the, it's those kinds of projects where you literally think, who was there and are they still alive? Can I speak with them? It's really quite extraordinary that you had to go to this work for such a modern topic, um, and yet it was so ephemeral and difficult to find out about it. You could be doing 17th century history, only then you wouldn't be able to look under people's beds for their own their own uh, scrapbook. Right, right, exactly. Um, what uh, she was on these tours, she was also really engaging, not just in um, cultural dis- diplomacy, but in personal diplomacy. Uh, and you say that she was very effective. Could you describe that? I never was witness to it. Um, however, the reports, you know, the reports may say, oh, well, you know, the, the dance company doesn't look so good or she's looking as old as the new Gucci rock on which she sits. I mean, you know, there were some fairly difficult reviews that the company had to deal with. People didn't understand the dance. 
but I never saw one instance of her stumbling um, in, in, as ambassador. Mm-hmm. Um, the reviews were always she, that she knew the perfect gesture, and you can see it in the photos. When she meets with a, somebody, a Japanese official, you can see she's bent slightly at the waist. If she's meeting with somebody French, she's very well postured, standing up with her white being with people. Um, and for engaging with people, um, particularly, I would say, particularly male diplomats. Um, you know, there are pictures of her with Reagan. Um, you know, they like school children um, and, you know, letters back and forth. Bless you, Martha. Bless you, Ronnie. Um, but also, and, and in, you know, also in India at the other end of her career, um, but also, she engaged very effectively with women. Um, Jackie Kennedy Onassis um, was on her board, supported her, um, and then was, uh, you know, financially um, for, in galas, and then was her editor at Doubleday for what is called Martha Graham's autobiography. Hmm. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt um, wrote about her often in her columns, um, and I would argue was the person who first brought her to the White House. Um, her donors, Lila Wallace, um, Bezabita Rothschild is a huge figure um, in her story in Israel. Um, so, you know, she was very, very good at engaging with people. You um, just referred to the uh, before the um, the increasingly critical and really just nasty reviews that she would get as time went on. Uh, is that because she did she refuse to change as uh, as as she kept on touring as she kept doing her work? Was the culture changing around her that fast? Um, it's a really interesting question. I think the first thing that one has to recognize is that she was born in 1894. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. This makes let's think 1955. She's playing the bride on the frontier, the young bride who's just getting married with hope in her eyes. Let's think how old she is. Now, most dancers are put to pasture much before this. Plus, she not only is center stage as a dancer, uh, as a young bride, um, she's also running a company, she's on airplanes, she's going from rehearsals to lecture demonstrations to center stage on stage to embassy parties, um, and then back all over again the next day. Um, you know, I, I'm about her age right now. When she first started, I cannot imagine the stamina that it took. Um, and I think, you know, what happens is by the mid-60s, she's looking old, as we all would. Her leg doesn't go as high, and, you know, she's, you know, considerations of facelifts and, you know, all the rest of it. Um, and there is a sense that not only is modern dance aging um, as the technique is codified, but also that she herself is literally looking too old to be on stage. Um, so I think with Phaedra in 1962, she makes a bid to be extraordinarily sexy, and she puts her men in these loincloths that you know the male dancers say they were afraid they were going to fall out <laughs> of them. <laughs> Um, and she has the Ethel Winter with center stage hanging off, well, not center stage, but off to the side, hanging on something that looks like a womb and spreads her legs, wearing a leotard to the audience. 
I mean, it's, you know, it was very heightened. The, the, some Congress people brought her up on, you know, in House on American activities um, on fighting the Cold War, fighting Cold War propaganda. Life magazine did a spread on her called Martha Too Sexy for Export. Um, <laughs> right? my, you know, my take on that is she was doing anything in her power to stay relevant and 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 in her so she used you know this kind of sexual allure of her dancers um and and mythic stories of sexuality so she could rely on saying well euripides did it mm-hmm. um so racine did it so why can't i um so you know i think there was a there was a double-edged problem um to me 1960 marks a critical point and that's when doris humphrey writes The Art of Making Dances, which is a manual on how to make a modern dance. Well, if you've got a manual on how to make a modern dance, is it really revolutionary, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, right. Um, And so I think there's a real problematic, particularly as the United States comes in and says, this is universal, this is free, this is modern, but it's old-fashioned. What, um, why did she do it? I mean, she, uh, as you say, she put a lot of energy into this. Was this to keep her, uh, I, I noticed that in her letters to, uh, at the end of her life, she's, she's really uh, saying to, I think it's H. George H. George Bush, uh, how, how expensive the company is, how badly they need support, et cetera, et cetera. Was this all to, was this for the company or was there, what, why did she do it? I think she was a tried and true American. I think she believed she, uh, you know, she's of the Frederick Jackson Turner ilk. The land frontier has closed, but the frontier spirit will now take over. You know, this kind of this idea of American exceptionalism um, that we were European and the frontier has, you know, forever changed us. I would argue that. It's kind of like this, there's this woman, Monroe, who talks about the third mind. I would argue that there was a similar pressure from Asia um, in terms of the modernizing um, uh, tendencies um, of stripping things down. Um, but, you know, she believed in the, in the frontier, the way Kennedy would use the word, you know, that it's not, it's the frontier of the mind, it's the frontier of space, you know, it's mm-hmm. the, she, you know, she believed in freedom, she believed in democracy, she believed in the core tenets of our constitution. Um, and so that made her a great ambassador. Um, she did. She wasn't touting something that she didn't really, really believe in. Um, that's number one. But I think, as the dancers often said, I argue that certainly American Ballet Theater, certainly Alvin Ailey, and in all likelihood Martha Graham, um, that these three companies would not be present today without State Department funding. Hmm. Um, and the National Endowment for the Arts... Um, and the State Department, although they weren't supposed to work together, often would in what they would call rescue missions, where the State Department would need something, say Alvin Ailey, um, because it showed um, uh, something about race in America, right? Um, just the way the jazz ambassadors did, but Ailey brought something very different and very unique. Um, and yet ALA didn't have the money for a company. Well, the National Endowment for the Arts could fund a season domestically, which would then get New York Times reviews and Christian Science Monitor reviews and Herald Tribune reviews, and then those reviews, then he'd have a set company rehearsed, ready to go, and the reviews could be sent to all the different posts, 
and used by the United States Information Agency to say, look what happened in New York, and now it's coming to you, right? Um, but sometimes those things started with Alvin Ailey's company disbanding and, and the NEA infusing them with money um, in order to, to get them a New York season. Um, so um, American Ballet Theater was extremely useful as well. Uh, so, so I think these companies often did it um, and went on tour because it was a job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where are you going to get this kind of money? I mean, these tours were expensive. I think when I saw the numbers, Graham's tour in 1955-56, um, not including Israel, was, I think, slightly in excess of $300,000. Mm -hmm. These are very, very, there are two airplanes involved with Graham, one for sets and costumes, the other for people. So, you know, these are real, these are real deployments, as it were. Um, and, you know, the other thing it did was it would bring in funders for new works, Frescoes, which was done in 1979, was funded by the Sacklers and Lila Acheton Wallace. Then it's taken to, for the Temple of Dendur, then it's sent to Egypt. So there's a, there's, it's not just the money for the tour and just the um, pay for the dancers for the tour. It also encourages domestic support. Let's, um, Let's move away from Martha and talk about you, Victoria Phillips. Um, you, this, how did you come to this rather peculiar uh, crisscross of interests? And by peculiar, I mean, um, I, I'm thinking like the 17th, I think it's the 18th century definition, uh, peculiar as in set apart. This is a very set apart uh, intersection, uh, dance and, and bolshies, um, as we said before. So how did that happen? Um, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with my upbringing, you know, as, as, as it often does. Um, I was very uncoordinated and a little, well, more than a little plump. Um, and I was not, um, uh, I was not promoted in my modern dance class at the age of eight. And my mother, a medieval, renowned medieval historian, Elizabeth Brown, um, decided to put me in 17th and 18th century French courtroom dance classes hmm. because I could... I would be very good at that. And indeed I was, particularly since I was one of three people in the United States who could do a minuet in the, in the late 1960s. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you always got the job. Um, but in all seriousness, I toured with a woman named Wendy Hilton, who was lovely as the kind of the example that any child could do a minuet. Um, and kind of, I think I got the performing bug. Um, then I also went to a school called Walden, which was, um, quite communist, I would think. Um, we um, went to peace marches um, instead of social studies classes. Um, Andrew Goodman um, was one of our alums who was um, killed as he was trying to um, trying to register African-Americans to vote in the South. Um, so, you know, it had a long legacy of um, political activism. So I think those two things um, kind of somehow gelled. Um, I was able to study with Martha Graham because Walden was one of those places where, you know, after seeing Martha Graham on Thursday night, I walked in on Friday, I said to my high school advisor, I said, I will be going to the Martha Graham school every morning from 10 to 30. And he said, well, all right, then you'll have to do independent studies. And I said, well, all right. And off I went. Huh. Um, so, you know, that's, uh, unfortunately, I, ca I can't spell and my, I never learned cursive or my multiplication tables. 
<laughs> there were some down, there were some downsides to all of that. But you learned modern uh, dance. But I learned modern dance. The first time I ever had to memorize the presidents was for my oral exams at Columbia University for my PhD. <laughs> so um, you know, it's a very it was a very different sense of what education was. I think it's sorely missing today. Um, however, I think there is some balance that could have been achieved in my lifetime, but there you have it. Um, So I was always inclined. Um, The other thing Walden always demanded of us is that we think out of the box. And I demand that of my students. What I say to my students the first day of class is what earns you an A is rigorous footnotes, um, attention to detail, and you must, in your final paper, tell me something I do not know. What um, there's a, a video of, of you um, discussing dance archives, um, which were I, I, I part of the material you used for for this book. Um, what in the world is a dance archive, and what sort of treasure trove does it contain? Uh, I, I've heard a lot of, about different archives, but this is the first time I ran across dance archives. Well, I, I you know I tend towards the ephemeral um, and. Um, um, so I'm really interested in, in dance archives, film archives, radio archives, um, but because they're so difficult. Um, so um, what is a dance archive? You know, that's uh, what I did is in order to try and reconstruct things. I did everything from oral histories to looking at documents to going back and looking at tapes of dances as far back as I could. Obviously, that's easier in the Cold War period because there were tapes. Um, I looked at pictures um, a lot, although you have to be very careful, you know, when is it a picture that's constructed for publicity and when is it a live, you know, kind of a live action picture. Um, And really what I said is I relied on, you know, anything I could get my hands on that could be statistically significant. Um, And in that, um, I, you know, I went under, I went to a lot of dancers' homes, um, plowed with them under their bed, got rolls of film from tours and developed them, and in general made sure that they got put at the Library of Congress or, um, or some other stable archive so that others could look at them and see something that I might not see, that I would miss. Um, one of the things I run at Columbia, developed and now run, um, is it's called the Cold War Archival Research Project. Um, it started out as the Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty Archive Project because the people who were writing about radio were the people who were making the radio shows. And it seemed to me that the next generation needed to write about what happened. And I feel that way about Martha Graham. It's like I can lay this out, but I rely on the next generation to take this where I can't take it because I lived in it. Um, So my Cold War archival students go into archives in Europe and the US and because some of them have never seen a radio, right? Um, So, you know, they are going to have a very different perspective on it. um, And I want to fund them to go into these archives because they're smart and because they don't know anything. So you're very interested in what dance can tell us about history. Um, what else? Uh, do you have a list of sort of dissertations I'd like someone else to write about dance and history? I, I keep a list of those in, in my head of, of certain things. Yeah, I wish someone would write about this. Um, what else are other possibilities for writing about dance and, and, and history? Not just in, in cultural history, but of course, but uh, diplomatic history as you've done, but other, other areas. 
I think one of, uh, you know, that one of the things that really intrigues me is um, Nixon's trip to China with Kissinger, and he, he saw a ballet, mm-hmm. and I've seen pictures of it, and apparently some people are doing work on it in China. It's a very famous ballet, and it's got women in point shoes and in fatigues holding guns. Um, and that's the the the, the 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 those are the pictures of the ballet that I see. Nixon is the person who deployed Graham in 1974, his administration. Nixon was vice president under Eisenhower. I think there's a great untold story there of his appreciation, um, not just for Elvis, <laughs> but for the arts. Um, and I think I think those who we tend to we we tend to villainize. Um, oftentimes have other sides to them. The same thing with Kissinger. I wish somebody um, was able to dig more deeply into Kissinger's um, uh, work with cultural relations. The other thing, um, I'd love somebody to write um, about George Kennan, Mm -hmm. um, architect of containment, as a cultural diplomat. I think we've all learned about him as, you know, kind of the X article and father of containment. But he, I know, um, was extraordinarily dedicated to the arts. And I believe there is a long biography um, there in terms of his work with modern art. Um, Nelson Rockefeller's cultural biography, I think, really needs to be done. Um, that involves New York City Ballet, or what became New York City Ballet, um, and many other National Endowment for the Arts, and um, you know many other that that really melds politics and the arts. And, and the way um, the ro- the entire Rockefeller family sort of also used uh, I, when you were talking about Lila Atchison Wallace, I was thinking about how the Wallaces had funded uh, Colonial Williamsburg uh, and the um, and the art museum there, and then there was Abby it was Nelson Rockefeller's uh, mother who collected folk art, Abby Aldrich Rockefeller and gave that as a museum to Colonial Williamsburg. I don't think it's an accident that she was collecting folk art, American folk art. Um, that's There's something interesting going on there politically in, as well, political culture. In my class, I teach a class called Women as Cold War Weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk about Abby Rockefeller. She's the person who started the Museum of Modern Art. Yes, right. Um, with her pin money, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, um, you know, these these kinds of questions are extremely important. Um, as you can see, my mind is kind of tending towards political biography um, uh, more than more than to genres. Mm-hmm. You know, there's obviously a huge amount of the, where there are tons of files and no one's done anything is Murray Lewis. Um, and Alwyn Nikolai. They have boxes in Arkansas, um, and he was known as a as a wonderful diplomat, much like Martha Graham. And who were, very, you'll have to excuse me. Who were they? Oh, sorry. Um, uh, the uh, Alwyn Nikolai had a company um, that did these wonderful works um, that were um, kind of I, I can't describe. They used light and. Um, a sound and kind of extensions of body. They were very visual in a, in a kind of very mod, modernist way. Um, and yes, they're forgotten. Hmm. Um, but the, you know, he was. Um, it was a. It was a fairly big company when I was growing up in the '70s, and very important to the State Department. And the pictures are gorgeous. And again, um, Nikolai was very much used because of the State Department people said he was awfully good at talking, um, <laughs> you know, much like Paul Taylor. Um, I, you know, I think there was 
there was a, a lot uh, there. He also somewhat, there's a, the idea that Merce Cunningham and John Cage were not sent out that much because they were openly homosexuals. And I think somebody really needs to look at Alwyn Nikolai um, and um, that relationship that he had because they also traveled together and I believe were fairly open um, about their relationship. So I think it also, not only does it remember Nikolai's company and shed light on some aspects of other companies that, that buttress some of the arguments that other people are making, but it also complicates um, some very, very interesting problematics with um, something that I don't do enough with in the book, which is um, homosexuality and dance. Um, one of the things that I really missed, I think, looking back, is the is the effect of the AIDS crisis, mm -hmm. and um, the you know real you know the the dredging of so many um, the the you know the 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 toll that the, the death of designers and dancers um, took on on theater and dance. Uh, something that I, I should have done something more with. Well, that's a lot. <laughs> I, I'm, the, and, <laughs> yeah, there is. And I guess, I mean, I, I believe that the State Department and modernism, have, have people written about the State Department and modernism before? Because that's the, uh, the ways in which uh, the State Department does seem to have been very committed to uh, the modernist art in every aspect and in evangelizing it. Yeah, there's some wonderful books. Um, there's a book called Cold War Modernism. Yes. Um, uh, and, you know, that's it's a Columbia University Press book. It's really excellent. Um, and it really goes through many of um, the genres. Um, he mentions Martha Graham, but um, I, I think um, I'm, I'm kind of like the insertion into that, into that book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are many books about the State Department and dance. Uh, Name of Prevost's Dance for Export um, is uh, kind of the mother of us all um, in terms of dance. And um, uh, Martha Graham is, you know, kind of a couple of paragraphs or maybe, if, you know, that's not right, more, but it's a chapter um, along with some others. Um, so, and I think her book outlines, you know, 50 books that can be written. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but um, I think there's some very, very good books. I think there's a what what would be interesting is for somebody to write a history of just the State Department um, rather than the artists or the genres that were used, mm -hmm. um, as well as and kind of the, this dismembering of um, our cultural apparatus, particularly after the end of the Cold War. Uh, it's it's I think tragic. Um, you know, I think in order for to get arts funding going again, we, we need a good Cold War. <laughs> well, you know, it, it looks like one is on the verge of being arranged. So, um, well, fortunately, there's no I desire for <laughs> high, well, high art. <laughs> well, that's that part of the story is also as I was thinking is the is what we might the end of high culture or yeah. the diminishment of high culture. Um, and uh, that's. That is a story that we'll have to talk about on some other in some other conversation. So I, I think we'll just say now that my guest today has been Victoria Phillips, author of Martha Graham's Cold War. Victoria, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. It was great. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Brunat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Thank you.